Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The USU College of Science is presenting a panel discussion titled A Time to Die. This virtual panel is tomorrow at 7 p.m. Everyone is welcome. Panelists will discuss physician-assisted dying, currently legal in a number of U.S. states, and how this practice might be implemented in Utah. And uh, we're going to make reference as well to a film which panelists are recommending that attendees view. It's the 2011 documentary, How to Die in Oregon, which follows the enactment and challenges to Oregon's Death with Dignity Act, which legalized medical aid in dying with restrictions. And so we uh, bring in our uh, panelists uh, on the phone, in this case, uh, Andy Anderson, principal lecturer and uh, pre-health advisor in the Department of Biology at USU. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Pat Sadowski is owner of Cash Valley Senior Consulting and a retired hospice nurse. Uh, welcome to you. Thank you. And uh, Matthew Welter is a family practice physician with the Living Tree Medical Group and hospice medical director. Uh, Dr. Welter, welcome to you. Thank you very much. I uh, should uh, note that Utah Public Radio is a media sponsor for this event. And we'll do this uh, disclaimer. It's, it's on the website for College of Science and our website as well. Views expressed by the panelists do not necessarily reflect the opinions of USU College of Science or Utah Public Radio. But an interesting, very interesting discussion. Let me start with you, uh, Andy Anderson. Um, in your bio, I, I understand that uh, you had a chance to, uh, to work with a number of patients as they died. This was as a clinical laboratory scientist. How does that connect up? Yeah, that was very surprising for me early in my career. I went into uh, laboratory medicine after being trained in that profession in the Army. And uh, when people would go into a code in the hospital and go into cardiac arrest or whatever, uh, they would often send the laboratory people there uh, to collect uh, arterial blood gases and other tests that were doing and I noticed that uh, as people died in hospitals, particularly with a medical team uh, working on them, it wasn't the way that I would like to end my life. Uh, having it be a medical emergency with people doing injections and uh, eventually calling the death of the patient, I'd much prefer a more calm environment at the end of my life at my home and surrounded by my family. Uh, you teach bioethics as well, so that gets you into the discussion of end-of-life issues, right? That is. That's true. I've been doing that for uh, quite a few years. I've been at Utah State for 38 years, and many of those years I've been teaching bioethics, which deals with these medical controversies. Let me turn to Pat Sadowski. Um, you uh, you, you uh, worked in many areas of nursing, but you say in your biography, when you moved into hospice care, you found your true love. It came screaming through, you say. How, how so? <laughs> um, I just felt like the connection with patients and families was uh, so intense and, and so so wonderful. They They were so willing to hear what we had to say and how we could help make life, what life was left, better and um, keeping patients comfortable, having families understand the process. Um, what I discovered when I went into hospice is nobody wanted to talk about dying. Um, they didn't want to even hear the word death. And 
um, they'd ask us to come into the home and don't say, don't tell him he's dying or don't use the D word. <laughs> and, you know, it's impossible to do a decent job of caring for a person who's dying if you don't address what's going on. And for most families, once we got over that barrier and the patient could talk about it, um, it went it went very well. Um, and we often told them, listen, we're not here to hurry it along. We're not here to stop it, but we're here to help and here to keep you comfortable in the process. And and um, people don't want to plan. They still don't want to plan. Look at what we're the mess we're in now. Um, they still don't want to talk about what they might want in those last um, few days or weeks. Mm. So we've uh, come a long way in some ways. <laughs> right, but, but and, and not in others. Still, still a ways to go. Uh, I'm reading from your bio yep. here that uh, you you worked in hospice for. Uh, about 25 years so but in cache valley uh, i guess when you started there was only one hospice and the hospice was not commonly known or understood do you, do you think that's changed over that time oh i think that's changed a tremendous amount um i think there's been a lot of public education along the lines of making choices um physicians um, are talking to patients way more in the last 20 years than they used to about you know, what if, what if when you come in and you, you know, are in crisis, um, what would you want? And, and then we had um, some standard changes within the system where we were asked to talk to patients about that, even if they were coming in for minor procedures in the hospital. So, um, so much has changed. It's quite unbelievable um, how different it is now. And um, I think the hospice Business has changed as well, um, and it became more of a business for some companies, um, some healthcare associations um, many years ago when they thought that it might be a, an addition to home health and it might be profitable. And, and so we had lots and lots of companies um, come into being um, across the country. But it didn't really hit the crux of the matter, which was, um, getting to people at end of life or at a critical juncture in their health care um, to say, listen, you've got choices here. We can try a few things, but this is a really awful diagnosis. <clears throat> so um, it's changed dramatically. Uh, I think people realize they have choices. I don't think they completely understand the difference between one hospice and the next. Um, and I think they don't realize that it's a service that's extremely valuable at end of life and most often not of any cost to them. Let me turn to uh, Matthew Welter, uh, who is a board-certified family practice physician. Uh, so, Dr. Welter, you... Um you have private practice with Living Tree Medical Group, but also uh, served as uh, have served, uh, are serving as hospice medical uh, director. Uh, what drew you to this work? Well, it really ever since I started in medicine, uh, way back in medical school, um, kind of like Pat was referring to, hospice really in palliative care wasn't really discussed a lot. Um, it was considered more of, of a failure, you know, that you know somebody you couldn't do enough for them. 
and you know they may die and so I wasn't really taught very much um, but I was very interested in it um, you know obviously the, the aspects of medicine is saving people but what happens when that's not enough and how can you um, help people be comfortable in their dying and make them comfortable with it and being able to have the discussions about it and so I, I basically started doing more palliative care even back in medical school and residency and it's really continued throughout my medical career that it's it's an aspect of medicine like all the others and it's it's one that you know physicians have gotten much better at over the years and and it's just it's an aspect of medicine that physicians also have to be comfortable discussing let me turn back to Andy Anderson uh, to, to begin a discussion of uh, terms and definitions uh, so yeah the, you know you get a uh, I guess even in preparation, even even before you get a terminal diagnosis, uh, you know, there's a range of options, right? Do not resuscitate, um, you know, living will, that uh, sort of thing, uh, all the way up to uh, physician-assisted dying, or, or I've heard the term physician-assisted suicide. Um, and then we hear the term euthanasia. So, Andy Anderson, I wonder if you could uh, parse those terms out. I'd be glad to. Uh, one of the uh, challenging things in discussions on bioethics is to use the proper terms for the right subjects so you can focus in uh, correctly on what you're discussing. Now, one of the terms that's often used uh, is euthanasia. And euthanasia is uh, the killing of one person by another, usually for merciful reasons. So euthanasia, you think about mercy killing. But one person is doing that to another. That's an active process. And that is illegal in the United States. It is legal in Holland and several other European countries. And how that happens in those countries is a subject for a different, different day. Mm -hmm. uh, suicide is where an individual without a terminal illness uh, causes his or her own death. And suicide, surprisingly, is not illegal in the United States, but uh, people who assist in suicide, that is a crime. And people who do uh, attempt suicide, there are penalties associated with that. Now, the term that we're using in this discussion is physician-assisted dying. And the difference here is the patient is terminal. A patient has six months or less to live, and so that doesn't really equate with suicide. This is a different category. And the physicians have the option with these terminal patients in states where this has been uh, enacted to assist them in prescribing a lethal dose of medications that the patient can take themselves. Nobody else does it for them. They do it themselves. So those terms are important distinctions. And uh, give us some parameters, some ins and outs of the Oregon law, just as, as an example. At Oregon, Washington, uh, are there other states that have similar laws? Actually, there are 11 states ah, that are okay. currently uh, proving this. And obviously, I'd like to see Utah. The ones that are currently involved is Washington State, uh, Hawaii, uh, District of Columbia, which is some of the states, uh, Colorado, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, Montana, New Jersey, Maine, and California, and other states will probably be joining that list in the times to come. Mm -hmm. Now, the other part of your question was, is what are the parameters? Uh, the way it was established by Oregon, because they realized this is a very sensitive area, 
is the patient has to be clearly competent. So we're talking about people who are competent, and you have two doctors and who approve of this, this step, and two witnesses who aren't physicians, one who can't be a member of the family, and uh, they must assert that the patient uh, is uh, fit for this particular process, and it's not under undue influence. Uh, the doctors uh, attest that the patient has six months to live, to the best of their judgment, and the patient has to wait 15 days before filling the prescription uh, to avoid impulsive uh, decisions. And physicians cannot administer the fatal dosage, only prescribe it. So this is something the patient has to do themselves. And I think you mentioned you have to be within a certain uh, time frame to, to death, at least pro- the, the prognosis? Yes, uh, the prognosis is six months or less. Yeah, okay. Let me turn to, to uh, Pat Sadowski. Uh, I'm going to make some reference to, uh, references to uh, this uh, film, How to Die in Oregon. Uh, wow, pretty impactful. What the, <laughs> what they what they do in the film? They they follow around some terminal patients, um, including being the bedside at the you know the administration of the of the lethal dose, etc. Uh, pretty heartrending. Um, and, and to think. Pat Sadowski and uh, and Dr. Welter, you 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 work in these situations, uh, you know, day in and day out. But Pat Sadowski, um, some of the uh, reasons given by some of these patients in this film, or some of these people in the film, uh, I'll just um, give a couple of quotes here. One person said, "I've already ended life. I want to exit life." Uh, talking about the quality of life, there, I guess. Um, uh, another person uh, said that I want to go while I can still, and then she listed off, uh, you know, several things. She also mentioned that she didn't want to be a burden to her family. Uh, what are, I guess, these things maybe resonate? I think things you've maybe heard from uh, from folks, and uh, what do people say about these things? I've heard that many, many times. Um, people, particularly elderly, but but people really dread being a burden to their family. They do not want to have their their um, loved ones and the people closest to them, the people they care about the most, um, watching them suffer and suffering in the process. And they also don't want to feel degraded by the care. Um, the one gentleman that, that um, didn't live in Oregon whose wife went on to fight for him um, to get the law in California, he felt like pieces of his existence were just carved away, and he felt like he was a different person, and he even looked like a different person. And so um, I think in those circumstances, um, people want to be able to choose when enough is enough. And and still be in charge, and they have to be to follow that law. But it's a balance, and, and it has to be their decision. And as with the, the woman who had the liver cancer, Cody, um, that was so moving to me that she struggled for a long, long time, and she coped with a lot, and then she drew her line in the sand of what when it was enough. And I think everyone was okay with that decision, Finally, um, I don't think her son was okay in the beginning, but um, he came around to to um, accepting her choice. So I think um, 
that's the rationale. I, um, as you'll find out if you look at the data, um, many, many people in Oregon chose this option but didn't use it. And so for myself, I think I would, if I had a really awful terminal diagnosis, I would want to have that as a backup plan. And and I think that's what we found out is that many, many people never use it for many reasons also, but um, they they decide they don't need it, that their passing is um, is going okay and they can tolerate it and stick with it. So... Yeah, uh, what a follow-up there. having it available is everything. Yeah. Uh, there's a gentleman in the film. He's an elderly gentleman. Uh, seems to be in, you know, not bad health. Um, but he mentions uh, he, he wants that prescription ready because he worries about having a stroke and, and then therefore quickly becoming a burden. Um, and he mentions his parents, uh, both of his parents, many years previous. Uh, he, uh, he was saddened by the way they exited life. Yes, yes. Yeah. It, it's very powerful. I think people need to un, um, watch it just to understand all the different dynamics that come into play and um, and that people very much want choice. And so much is taken away from them in the way of capacity and the way of being able to live their life and get up in the morning and take care of the normal things we take care of in the morning and and then, you know, the pain, of course, and, and the, the mental anguish of family watching. And, and of course, in our country, um, sometimes the, the playing out of, of the care without hospice is unbelievably expensive. And the one gentleman, his plan would pay for treatment, but it wouldn't pay for the prescription for him to die. And... Certainly, the treatment is way more expensive than the prescription, and it was probably going to be unsuccessful in his case anyway. So, I mean, he was in a horrible bind. Let me turn to movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, very powerful, very powerful. Uh, How to die in Oregon, um, and the link is on the the site where you can find the event, which is tomorrow evening at seven. Just to remind people, USU College of Science presenting a panel discussion called "A Time to Die." Uh, I found the easiest way to find that website for the College of Science is to uh, just in your search engine type Time to Die USU, and it'll come right up for you. And we'll have this a little later on our website as well. Um, So, uh, Dr. Welter, I want to turn to you. One of the arguments um, that that I heard, this was expressed in the film, uh, against physician-assisted dying, uh, this I think was expressed by a doctor, uh, who said, uh, we've made a lot of advances in palliative care. We've made a lot of advances in controlling pain. You know, we, we, can, we can help with the end of life without having this option. Um, I wonder what you say to that. Well, I, I agree with him um, in, in many aspects, but it certainly isn't all of them. And, and I think, like uh, Pat was saying, you know, a lot of people may say, you know, I want this option to be there, but they don't actually do it. But there are enough diseases out there where, you know, even being on hospice isn't always the best option, where you're just really going to waste away and despite all of the things you do, will be miserable. Um, you know, in the film, for example, um, the woman with the liver cancer. Um, 
you know, it, it's a really awful way to go. And despite everything hospice can do, they tend to be very miserable and the pain is hard to control and they have to undergo procedures to drain fluid off their belly because, you know, it gets so painful and so tight that, you know, it, it, it the hospice can watch them till the end, but, but they still do suffer quite a bit and their family sees them just really decaying and wasting away. And then once again, that's harsh on them, and it's not really a death of dignity, and it has nothing to do with the hospice people trying their hardest. It's just that the medications and some of these circumstances don't help, or degenerative diseases like Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. You know, to, to, to play it all the way to the end a lot of times is still a lot of suffering, and we can't alleviate all of that with, with our current medicines either. So I, I think it certainly is an, is an option you know, that's needed, to really alleviate the suffering and plus, you know, give the people the time when they want to go. And I don't think people want to be, you know, bedridden, hardly responsive, delirious, have family having to take care of everything with them, you know, if they have different options for some of these diseases than people will. Other diseases, yes, you can be coherent and things can be controlled until the end and, and that and that works well for a lot of people. But, you know, for some for some circumstances that's certainly not the case and the and a better option for them would be the physician-assisted suicide. One more question for you, Dr. Welder, and then we'll go to break, and, of course, much more to discuss here. Um, uh, again, referencing the film, uh, this was uh, in uh, the debate leading up to what turned out to be the passage of uh, Death of Dignity Act in Washington. Um, the, the filmmakers uh, had a brief interview with a, a, a physician standing there with his family, in a, in a, you know, urging voters to vote against this measure. And so this physician referenced Hippocrates. Uh, he, he said, uh, Hippocrates set up the, the role of physician. We, we will help you. Uh, do no harm, right? And then this physician said, actively uh, helping to end life is not the practice of medicine. Um, what would you say to that, Dr. Welder? Well, I, I, I would say that, that that's incorrect um, because you're supposed to ease people's suffering. And if you don't have an answer or you don't have a solution that will ease their suffering, you know, by helping a cure, well, then, you know, I, I do think you have an obligation to make them comfortable, um, you know, and, and this plays out all the time in hospitals. Um, you know, for example, when somebody's in the ICU and they can't, you know, they can't breathe and they're dying, you know, there comes a time to say, you know, we're going to keep the person comfortable. You know, we're not going to have them on the ventilator. We're not going to do these things but we'll give them medicines to make them comfortable. And we're not just going to keep, you know, keeping the ventilator rolling and keep drugs pumping into them when there's really, you know, a lot of, not a lot of hope that they're going to have any meaningful life or they're going to live through it anyway. So these decisions are made all the time on, on saying, well, let's not have a person suffer. And this is really not any different than those decisions. So I, 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 I saw that and I, I certainly didn't agree with them because certainly in medicine for a long time, those kind of decisions have been made, and 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 they should be. And, and so I, I don't think that this is is any different than that. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, we're talking with panelists who are going to uh, be presenting a panel discussion uh, tomorrow evening, uh, Friday evening, with the uh, USU College of Science. They're presenting this discussion. It's called "A Time to Die," and it's a virtual. And uh, so anywhere you're listening, you can join the discussion. Uh, that's 7 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, you can uh, join the discussion from a website from the College of Science. I've found the easiest way to get there is just to Google or put in your search engine 
uh, USU and Time to Die. It'll come right up for you. Uh, the panelists will discuss physician-assisted dying, currently legal in a number of U.S. states, and how this practice might be implemented in Utah. And the panelists are recommending that, uh, in preparation for that, uh, you view the 2011 documentary, How to Die in Oregon. And uh, the link to that is on that website as well. We're talking with Andy Anderson, Principal Lecturer and Pre-Health Advisor in the Department of Biology at USU, Pat Sadowski, owner of Cache Valley Senior Consulting and a retired hospice nurse, and Matthew Welter, Family Practice Physician with Living Tree Medical Group and Hospice Medical Director. And we'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and the Moab Folk Festival, with support from the Utah Office of Tourism, presenting Patty Griffin, John Craigie, May Erlewine, and more. November 6th and 7th, tickets and lineup information at moabfolkfestival.com. Here's another happiness hack from Healthy Relationships Utah. Are you having trouble connecting to your stepchild? Building relationships takes time, and although doing things as a family seems like a good idea, for step-families, it's actually better to plan one-on-one activities to build and strengthen relationships. Try to find activities that are unique that can become your activity with your stepchild, like being the adult partner in their scout group, or being the one to drive your stepdaughter to basketball practices. Helping with homework or everyday chores are also great for one-on-one time. These individual activities build connection and create shared experiences that strengthen the relationship with your stepson or stepdaughter. USU's Healthy Relationships Utah Initiative offers a variety of courses online and in person that help singles, couples, and parents. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. The USU College of Science is presenting a panel discussion titled A Time to Die. And this uh, virtual panel is tomorrow, 7 p.m. Everyone is welcome. You can join from wherever since it's virtual. And uh, just go to the, uh, the website uh, set up by the College of Science. Uh, I found the easiest way to get there is to uh, Google uh, USU and A Time to Die. I'll take you right there. Uh, you'll also find a link there to the 2011 documentary film, How to Die in Oregon. And the panelists are recommending that you view that film ahead of attending the the, the panel. And we've been referencing that uh, as well as we go along. We're talking uh, on the program today with the panelists. Andy Anderson, Principal Lecturer and Pre-Health Advisor with the Department of Biology at USU. Pat Sadowski, owner of Cash Valley Senior Consulting and retired hospice nurse and Matthew Welter, family practice physician with Living Tree Medical Group and hospice medical director. Uh, should note the UPR is a media sponsor for the event. Uh, so, um, and you can join the discussion if you would like by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Perhaps you have a uh, uh, experience with a family member such. Uh, you could uh, tell us about that, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Let me turn to you, Andy Anderson. Um, I want to treat uh, some arguments against uh, physician-assisted death. Um, we've we've talked about a couple of those. I would imagine there are some religious objections to this. Yes, uh, certainly that is a, a common concern. Uh, one of the uh, statements that's often made with dying patients is that their life is a gift and they have to maintain that 
life uh, as service to others uh, as long as they draw a breath. And I can see how people can see that religious obligation for the life that uh, was given to them. But again, you have to realize not everyone in our society is religious. And it seems to me that if people want to follow that practice and live as long as it's physically possible, that's their choice. If they feel that they're serving a worthwhile purpose, uh, they can continue on. Where, as Pat Sadowski mentioned earlier about drawing a line, uh, I am actually a religious person myself as well. But I put in my living will that if I no longer have the mental ability to know who I am or to recognize my own children, I'm done, and I no longer want to continue. So if I had a degenerative neurological condition, despite my religious beliefs, I think becoming in a vegetative state, I would no longer be much of a service to anyone. And I would like to, in my life at that time, perhaps by using a physician-assisted dime. So I think there is a spectrum of opinion on this, but in a democratic society, we need to accommodate everybody's wishes and have this as an option for people who would like to do that if they're religious or even if they're not religious. Uh, another uh, argument that I'd like to have you treat is uh, the slippery slope argument to where will this lead? Uh, I imagine we do have experience and data. Of if, uh, what did you say, 11 states have adopted this, uh, Oregon, for several years. Uh, what, what are we finding with this? And uh, maybe address that uh, slippery slope argument. Yeah, I'm actually very familiar with that from my, my ethics class. And the slippery slope argument that you describe is that if we open a gate, let's say, to a controversial subject, that that would lead to a cascading series of events that would lead to a terrible outcome. And the idea is basically that if we approve physician-assisted dying, that would uh, then lead to uh, euthanasia, like it's practiced in Europe, and that would lead to involuntary deaths something like which happened in Nazi Germany. Well, I can see why people are concerned about a slippery slope, and this is why the statistics out of Oregon, uh, which have been keeping them for the last 20 years, indicate that uh, of the people dying in Oregon in, like, the past 10 years, out of 100,000 dying Oregonians, only 670 have chose this option. This is a fraction of 1%, uh, about 0.4 to 0.7%. So it hasn't gone away like a runaway train. It hasn't led to a slippy slope. It's just been a small fraction of the people. And of the people who actually ask for the medication, uh, just slightly over half actually use it. And of those people, they're a very small fraction of the total dying population in Oregon. So based on the statistics they've had, it has not led to a slippery slope. And with these parameters they put in place to control this, I don't think it will.
Let me turn to uh, Pat uh, Sadowski, uh, retired hospice nurse. Um, by the way, uh, you, you uh, run the Cash Valley Senior Consulting. Uh, parenthetically, tell me a little, little bit about that. You, you work with seniors, uh, quality of life, I'm sure. Does, does, does dying and that, those topics, do those come up as well? You know, um, those are two very different um, directions to practice. Um, so my senior consulting is to help seniors um, be comfortable in their situation and find the right path to live. Um, so um, in some cases, it means um, making their home safer and getting them help so they can stay put. Um, in some cases, it means finding them a new place to live near their family um, where they can have support, um, a new physician and a new set of circumstances that can keep them safe and close to a loved one. Um, so it's quite variable. It's depending on the, the needs and wants of, um, of the family that calls me. Um, it's amazingly gratifying, by the way. Um, and they're not, these are not hospice mm-hmm. patients. They're not appropriate for hospice. They're still quite functional. Um, and sometimes one of the partners has um, a diagnosis of dementia. And so we help them sort out the best place for that person and couple to be. <clears throat> so um, that's pretty different than, than end-of-life care and hospice care. But um, I think... It's it's really nice to be on both sides of that mm-hmm. ability to help people. Um, and you said earlier, does that uh, your question? yes, yes, it does. Uh, you said earlier that um, we, you know, this has been in front of us for a long time, and increasingly, at least in you know films like How to Die in Oregon, and uh, you know programs like this, and your panel discussion, uh, talk about uh, issues, end of life issues. But I, I think people, and this is understandable, and families were reluctant to bring the subject up, right? Reluctant to talk about it. Terribly reluctant. You know, it's funny that <laughs> sometimes the patient's the, the most comfortable with the topic. Um, and I've had some rather amusing encounters when um, being invited into the home for the first time to talk about it and and. Only the patient's comfortable mentioning the D word, dying word, um, and and you have to kind of get to a point where they bring it up, and and then you can discuss how yeah well that's going to happen. Let's let's see how we can make it the best it can be, and it takes a little time and it takes a lot of um, consideration to get the family to buy into it. Um, but so often, once that, that decision's been made, then we can talk about, let's keep this person comfortable. Giving them these medicines for pain is not going to hasten their death. It's going to keep them comfortable until it happens. And families are so conflicted about that. They don't understand that so many measures that we do at end of life are hugely painful and and that our best way to handle that situation is most of the time keeping them out of the hospital, out of the ER, and um, at their home. And it's, it's incredible what we can offer in that home that 
they do, they do not need um, an intensive care bed in an intensive care unit. Um, so I think we, we really need to build trust with families, and Dr. Walter is very familiar with that. The hospice rules now say that um, the phys- hospice physician visits the home, so, so they're well in touch with the family circumstances. Um, it's a real um, team effort to help that patient down, go down that road with the family or whoever is important to them. It's not always, it's not always family. Let me turn to uh, Dr. Welter again here. Uh, well, before I do that, uh, a quick email. So we have an email uh, that says, The panel discussion is something I'm very interested in. I may want to share it with a friend who's actually on hospice, but I'd like to watch it first before I do. Will this online discussion be recorded and available to the public? And the answer is yes. Um, the uh, Once the... Once the panel discussion is done, and again, the panel discussion is tomorrow night, Friday night at 7 o'clock. Once that's done, it will be posted to the USU College of Science YouTube channel for future viewing. And so to our emailer, uh, keep an eye on the USU College of Science YouTube channel. Uh, after the, the discussion is done, you can uh, you can view that and then share it if you want with your with your friend. So, Dr. Welter, um, I want to p- pick up what uh, Pat Sadowski was talking about, family members. In the film, we, you know, there's, uh, understandably, a lot of conflicting feelings uh, about uh, their family members who are choosing physician-assisted dying. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about what, what the family members uh, go through and, and, um, and, and the decisions that they have to make or reactions to decisions that their loved one is making. Um, yeah, so it's yeah, obviously there's all those different family dynamics, so I can't always speak for, for every family being the same. Um, now, you know, and there's different levels of decisions. You know, for example, if somebody gets hospitalized, goes in feeling sick, and obviously they, they decline somewhat rapidly, you know, then sometimes the discussions are, are a little bit different in how the family will feel that something like hospice. Um, where you know it, it's it's known that that they're dying, and, and for a lot of family members, it's not really a, a big shock to them, um, you know that that they are, and, and they're a bit more on board with the decisions and saying you know that they've really done all the things they can do. Um, now at times there are conflicts, um, and it, and a lot of times, in all honesty, it's usually family members who don't live in the immediate area who haven't been the caregivers, and they come to see their loved one. And a lot of times they can be very shocked. You know, they see them, the last time they saw them, they were healthier looking, you know, they, they, they weren't actively dying. And when they see them, they get rather shocked. And, and sometimes that can translate in, into some conflicts with things. Um, and some families just don't get along, and, and that, that, that's always, you know, an incident too. But for a lot of people, you know, when, when you talk to them about it, um, even in the hospitals, there, there's a lot of sense of relief when you say, you know, I think we've done everything we can do and you don't have to feel like you have to fight and fight and do every last everything until the very end you know like uh, kicking and screaming and clawing to stay alive you know when it's not going to save you and and many times there there's a lot of actually relief from the families when they hear that that they feel that they're not the ones you know totally having to make that decision just on their own that when you come and talk to them about it and say you know this this is what i i think you can do well, we'll obviously do your wishes but you know, there's a lot of relief. And for a lot of patients, they have a lot of relief because they they know they're dying. 
And you'd be very surprised at how many people have that sense that they know they're dying, you know, and to hear it just kind of confirms what they already know. Um, and so, and so a lot, a lot of times it's very, it's very helpful to discuss with the families on, and most times, even when the family members are at, at first somewhat resistant, over time, they, 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 they tend to come to see that, you know, a lot of times either withdrawing care or comfort cares, um, you know, are, are a much better thing to do. And so we, we don't have, in the end, we don't have huge conflicts in the end, but sometimes there are initial things, any social dynamic can have that. Um, but, but for the most part, that it, it, it goes fairly well in interacting with families and certainly can help them transition also. Let's take another break, and we'll come back with our final segment with our panel. And they're the panel that's going to be presenting a virtual panel discussion presented by the USU College of Science at USU. Uh, it's called A Time to Die. They'll be talking about um, physician-assisted dying. Several states in the U.S. have a law in place, uh, and uh, so the panelists will be talking about the possibility of uh, bringing this uh, kind of a law to Utah. Uh, the best way to get to the website where you can click on the link to the virtual panel discussion, this is open to anybody, begins at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening, uh, I've found is to just in your search engine type USU time to die. It'll come right up for you. Uh, we'll have more following this. Hi, Carrie Bringhurst here, thanking you for your support of Utah Public Radio during our fall member drive. We are now back to our regular programming. We still need your support. We need to reach our final goal of $60,000. We have about $10,000 more we need to raise. It's not too late to pledge your support and go online at upr.org to become a new member or a sustaining member. Thank you so much for all you do to support what we do. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm talking today with panelists who will be presenting a panel discussion for the USU College of Science. And that event is a virtual event, so anywhere you're listening, you can attend this virtual event. Um, uh, and it's uh, titled A Time to Die. It's discussing physician-assisted dying. Uh, many, uh, several states in the U.S. have a law in place allowing this with restrictions, uh, and uh, the panel panelists will talk about the possibility of this uh, coming to Utah. Uh, that is uh, on a page at the, the College of Science. I've uh, found the easiest way to get to that page where you can click on that link to get to that virtual discussion uh, tomorrow evening at 7 uh, is to, uh, in your search engine, type in USU and time to die. The panelists are Andy Anderson, principal lecturer and pre-health advisor in the Department of Biology at USU, uh, Pat Sadowski, owner of Cache Valley Senior Consulting and retired hospice nurse, and Matthew Welter, family practice physician with Living Tree Medical Group and hospice medical director. Uh, so we just have uh, about six minutes left in the discussion, so we'll uh, come down to sort of wrap up here. With each of you, I'll start with uh, Andy Anderson. Um, 
have you say anything else, you, anything you'd like to say, but I'd like to maybe have you address uh, first uh, briefly something that Cody said. Cody is the, the lady who is dying of uh, liver uh, cancer. Um, she said uh, something that struck me. She said, in our society, we equate suffering with courage. And uh, and she was saying, uh, she she expressed a hope often through the film of, uh, I hope I die well. I hope I don't, uh, you know, especially in front of my kids, right? Um, and and she and she was kind of pushing back on this notion of uh, suffering equals courage. Yeah, I I would uh, disagree with that. Uh, I I was raised on a farm out in California, and we had animals that were suffering. Uh, it was very obvious that you that you tried to alleviate their suffering at the end of life, and we certainly didn't keep the animals alive to the end of their days. Now, people aren't animals like that. But at the same time, having somebody suffer to the very end, I can't see that that would be something that the individual would want or even the family uh, would want. And what I'm hoping is that if people become familiar with physician-assisted dying, if families attend those deaths, and see how people end their lives in a more dignified fashion at home, that this will gain momentum around the country. And people actually can see the benefit of this option. Let me turn to Pat Sadowski uh, again. Anything you'd like to say, but I'd like to have you address this. Again, This, I believe this is Cody. She's a, probably the principal uh, figure in the film. Um, we're talking about the film How to Die in Oregon, which follows the enactment of challenges to Oregon's Death and Dignity Act. Uh, and you can find a link to that on that uh, site for a Time to Die panel discussion page. Um, so uh, Cody talked about uh, she wanted this option of physician-assisted dying because she wanted to have choice about how she left her family members. So this idea of choice, very important. You probably found that in, in hospice. Very important, very, very important. You know, Cody was um, such a classic example, um, such a strong woman. Um, she, she exemplified dignity for me. Um, so towards the end, they didn't emphasize this very much, and I think the general public probably wouldn't have picked up on this, but she was on 75 milligrams of morphine an hour. That is a tremendous amount wow. of morphine. And, and yet in the film, you know, she looked very courageous, which she didn't always look like she was in incredible pain, but that's a, that's a huge amount. And she was still rather functional on that amount of morphine. So I think when it came down to it, she just decided, I've had enough. And she chose the people she wanted to be with, and she chose the day. Um, and I think that gave her the power to, to finally... Um, manage that last few days and, and then um, say goodbye. It was so powerful. I think um, I would love to have people give their impressions of that, especially that moment. Um, I mean, she was only 54 years old. She wasn't an elderly person. She hadn't even, you know, retired. She hadn't finished her time on earth um, except for this horrible diagnosis. So um, in her case, she probably only had a week or two to live anyway. 
with what was going on with her um, her cancer. So um, that's the that's the case that um, was so powerful for me. Um, Matthew Welter, Dr. Welter, um, just have about a minute or so left. Uh, we'll we'll turn to you for what's. What's the big takeaway from at least this discussion and looking ahead to your panel discussion tomorrow? What's the big takeaway that you'd like people to, to, to focus on in this discussion? Well, I think the big focus is, is that, you know, this is something um, that I think will, will be yet another medical, uh, I guess, tool for things to, to help people near the end of their lives. And, and to, to have people see, um, you know, that it can be a very viable option for people and for physicians, you know, also an option to help people with suffering, you know, when they have terminal diseases for which there isn't going to be a cure, um, you know, that, that this is an option that, that's both humane and, and dignified. And, and I think it, uh, hopefully people will see that, that it really should be an option and honestly a right that people, you know, should expect. Um, at the end of life, that, that they can have these kind of options available to them. Well, uh, we're out of uh, time for this uh, hour, but there's much more discussion to come. The panel discussion is tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock. It's presented by the USU College of Science. It's titled A Time to Die, and the, the panel will be discussing uh, physician-assisted uh, dying. Uh, and so it's virtual. So from anywhere you are, you can access the panel, participate, uh, just uh, go to the uh, website, and the uh, easiest way to get there is to, uh, in your search engine, type in USU and Time to Die. It'll come right up for you. It'll give you the link to the panel discussion, and it'll give you a link to the uh, documentary, a 2011 documentary, How to Die in Oregon, that we've been making reference to uh, throughout the hour. Andy Anderson is uh, a panelist. He's principal lecturer and pre-health advisor in the Department of Biology at USU. Andy Anderson, thanks so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Pat Sadowski is owner of Cash Valley Senior Consulting and retired hospice nurse. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. And uh, Matthew Welter is family practice physician with Living Tree Medical Group and hospice medical director. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us on. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space, or a lot. On our way into the sky tonight, Jupiter and Saturn continue to shine in the southeast starting at dusk and keeping you company all night for your viewing pleasure. Just stick your head out and you'll see it. Overhead, the summer triangle continues into fall with Cygnus the Swan floating just about straight overhead these evenings. Deneb, Vega, and Altair are the brightest. If you look for a moment, you can't miss these, and zooming in, if you're in a dark spot, the twinkly trails of star clouds of the Milky Way, and let your spirit wander the star trails either direction to either horizon. For an early morning treat, get a hot beverage and look eastward 45 minutes before dawn, Saturday morning, October 2nd through the 5th. Find the beautiful crescent moon hanging near here is Regulus, the big twinkly forefoot of Leo the Lion, already making an early fall appearance. Check out the Skywatcher Facebook page for a sky chart and resources and other fun photos. And let's fly the little Skywatcher ship out a little further to Mars, where NASA's InSight lander has detected its three most powerful quakes yet, giving scientists a better picture of the red planet's interior. InSight spotted two Mars quakes on August 25th and then picked up another on September 18th that lasted for nearly 90 minutes. 
solar-powered lander's main science instruments reveal how much the planet is wobbling on its axis. This also sheds light on its interior structure. The seismometers recorded and characterized hundreds of Mars quakes to date. This allows the InSight team to map out the Martian interior. And taking our little spaceship out even further into the asteroid or Kuiper belt, which contains thousands of icy bodies, the majority of which are smaller than Alaska, and that are the cosmic debris from the formation of the solar system. Over the last few years, however, we have discovered a series of huge rocky objects beyond Neptune and Pluto. Which, by the way, the OT will go a little more in-depth on Pluto soon. As I've said before, I consider Pluto a full member of the Planet Club, thanks to its discoverer Clyde Tombaugh and painstaking work to discover it. Anyway, as the amazing New Horizons spacecraft flew by Pluto in 2015, we learned that Pluto may have plate tectonics. At any rate, New Horizons then zoomed way out to a big asteroid over a billion miles away, known as Ultima Thule, which we talked about extensively on this show. This is the most distant object studied in space by a spacecraft, and and now, ta-da, the existence of a new planetary body could explain the peculiar movements of celestial objects orbiting beyond Pluto. Scientists say this could be a big planet with a mass between five and ten times greater than Earth's. Kind of funny we haven't found that yet. So we'll keep an eye on this as we explore Pluto and beyond in coming episodes. So keep looking up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR, Utah Public Radio, with translators statewide and streaming live at upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.